Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I have a special guest, fellow podcaster and serial entrepreneur with multiple exits under his belt, Jeff Durso. Jeff is a Massachusetts native who, after attending MIT, sold his first business at the height of the internet bubble in 2000. We'll hear how a strategic partner can turn into an acquirer without any notice and how a well-timed silence during the subsequent negotiation with that buyer was worth an extra $1 million to Jeff. On his second exit, Jeff describes the incredible hurdles he and his team overcame to get multiple investors in line with signatures in place to not blow up a deal. Jeff shares his lessons learned on keeping your cap table clean and how time is not your friend in any M&A engagement. So let's jump into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff Durso. So Jeff, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I got really excited when Brian told me about your background, having built and launched multiple companies and had multiple exits. I know the stories that we've talked about briefly are going to be very valuable to our fellow founders who are thinking about potentially selling their businesses uh, someday. And you know, when you decided, hey, I'll take this time slot, I, I really had no qualms about bumping Mark Cuban from this spot. So I really appreciate you <laughs> taking the time. No, of course. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Todd, for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I like to start these podcasts with how we met. And this is a little bit interesting in that my partner and I were always looking for interesting podcasts around our topics, but other topics as well, and looking at people that just do it really, really well. And my partner was listening to Founder Breakthroughs, right, your podcast, and started looking you up on LinkedIn and seeing what you've done in the multiple exits. So I think you had commented on one of our posts and we reached out and said, hey, maybe we could do a home and home here, right? We'd love to have you on our podcast, certainly willing to, to support what you're doing with educating entrepreneurs at the beginning of their journey, where ExitWise is more about bringing that education and help near the end of the journey. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's perfect too, right? And there's so many dials you have to get just right at both of those parts of the journey. Otherwise, you can leave a lot of money on the table, right? So if you get, if you get certain dials wrong at the beginning of the table, it could literally mean your, your startup doesn't get off the launch pad. And at the end of the process, if you get those dials just you know, slightly wrong, you could leave 20%, 50%, 80% of money on the table. So it's really important that you very carefully think of those throughout the process. That's great. So we'll get into that during this conversation. So because this podcast is always a, but really about the exit, right? And the advice that founders give, we tend to skip over the building of the companies. But I think when you and I spoke, there are two situations in particular that probably want to jump into and that you can certainly uh, share your guidance and advice around M&A. And so maybe you could take us back on, on the first company, the one that you sold at the height of the NASDAQ. Sure. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting framing here too, right? So I did a recent, I recently did a podcast called Begin with the Exit in Mind, which I didn't learn until after my first company, right? So when we started my first company, we weren't really thinking of exit, except maybe, maybe we'll go public someday in this distant future, right? Whereas in the second company, we were very deliberate about our exit strategy from the very beginning. And I think that'll, that'll come out as I talk through it. But sure. If, if we go back to the first company, so we were right when the web was getting started, um, we had spent every weekend kind of coming up with ideas for how to get rich quick on the web and 
came up with some incredible ideas. No one took notes. So we started over every weekend. And at some point we were like, why don't we just do picks and shovels and actually just build a consulting company? And very quickly we found our niche within the financial services space. So Thompson Financial was looking to do some strategic moves in the web space. And when we told them we could build some of these products in a matter of weeks instead of years, they jumped on that opportunity. So that was an incredible partnership that we worked on and built some, you know, just some incredible web properties very quickly that that ramped up to millions of dollars in revenue like almost overnight. And again, that created a blind spot for me because later I realized it's because Thompson had like all of Wall Street on the Rolodex. So anything we created, they could sell immediately. Um, but that's kind of how it went. And so we built a lot of momentum um, up through about 2000 where in our strategic planning meetings, we said it's really important that we go all in on the dot-com space because that's where the future is coming. <laughs> So that, that, was, that was one thread that we were doing uh, going into 2000. Um, another thread was we were looking at uh, venture, raising venture capital, but we were opening some potential acquisition opportunities. And um, one Friday afternoon, this was not, I did not know that this was going to be a big day ahead of time, but this was uh, March 10th of 2000. My partner reached out to me from New York. He said he was stuck in New York and he and Sam, my brother, was my third partner, we're going to go to talk to this company that was thinking of acquiring us. But it was it was pie in the sky. We didn't we didn't think it was really serious. But he said, you know, put together a PowerPoint. So we talked it through, you know, give them three bullet points, give them one to cross out, which would be intellectual property because we were a consulting company. So I literally put together a presentation, put this big, fat, you know, $6 million thing to, for them to put a line through called intellectual property. The other two bullet points added up to like $9 million. And, you know, fast forward to this meeting, I think it was like, 3.30 p.m. in this conference room with this company and we're actually talking turkey and going through it and we get to that slide with the pricing and he crosses out the intellectual property kind of scoffs at it but not in a bad way kind of like looks at that and he stops and he's like yeah i guess we can do nine million and stunned silence at that point but this is what's interesting about silence right so i think from our perspective this was supposed to be any other friday and now suddenly we had this offer for nine million dollars on the table right and I think he might have interpreted the silence as disappointment. So at, we didn't break the pause. We just sat there kind of stunned. And he came back and said, or 10 million. And then at that point, that was, that was how we made our deal. Like literally the moment that NASDAQ was hitting its, its relative high, we were uh, shuttering the dot-com plans and, and doing the acquisition path instead. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, there's a lot in that story, right? So first, you've got some inbound interest that you're not, sounds like you're not even really aware of. It's your other partner and your brother and okay you're gonna i guess pacify this conversation with a pitch deck yeah and in some form in that pitch deck you're gonna share how you think about valuation and knowing that this is going to be a negotiation you put in an element that yeah they need to throw something away so we'll give them this piece of the puzzle to throw away and like yeah. like clockwork they do it exactly and then sitting at a negotiating table that you really didn't think was going to be a negotiation you now, uh, you're stunned at an offer and they take that as disappointment and up their offer just because of the uncomfortable silence. Yeah, we were stunned that, because you know, if you go back about six months before this, our line of credit was tapped. Our client was late paying us at one point, so our line of credit's tapped. We've got all my credit cards up. I mean, we're like on the verge of just getting financially wrecked. So to go from that point to like, okay, there's real money on the table here. That was a pretty crazy shift um, over the course of a few months, right? So this meeting, yeah, I had known about them. I know there was some interest there, but there was normal that 
my partners and I, I would call him. I'd call him sometimes and be like, hey, I can't make this client meeting. Can you go? Here's what we need to talk about. Or he'd do the same to me. So this was just another one of those meetings until it wasn't. <laughs> That's fantastic. I liked at the beginning of your story. You talked about you're going to build a company, right? You're going to make money and you don't really have the exit in mind. And whereas in one of your next ones, you do have the exit in mind, you're planning it out. Yeah. What hits me is that you didn't have investors on this first one, right? You guys were just saying, Correct. hey, how do we catch lightning in a bottle? And yep. you figure out how to do that, but you don't have that external pressure of like, hey, we need liquidity in, in three years. We need you working towards this valuation. It was right, you guys seizing a moment, right? And yeah. bootstrapping, right? Which all of us entrepreneurs have gone through. And that is that is a real struggle for yourselves, your families, right? To make those decisions, to take all of that risk. So that's awesome yeah. that that it paid out. And it paid out at the height of the NASDAQ, right? People are throwing money yeah. around. But you still have to ink that deal, Jeff. So can you talk me through that? The, <laughs> so I remember on that Friday afternoon, so I took a I took a trip by the Acura dealership to visit my dream car that was just sitting there <laughs> roped off. It's a little that's a little different than your brother's dream car though, right? <laughs> So yeah, so yeah, so I laugh because he had um, when we had started selling years earlier when we were doing cold calling. His motivation, he would have like certain levels of how effective was his day, and at the highest level was a a red Ferrari convertible with tan leather. Was the just this stock image that he had taken out, and he would look at that all the time. And so you fast forward to now, we're actually we've got a real deal going, right? So for me, it was the Acura NSX. So. I went to the Acura dealership, couldn't couldn't cross the rope line, right? But I could look at this car that was just sitting there, like just waiting for me. But I'm like, all right, but now this deal has to close before I can actually make that happen. Um, which, God, that's when the pain began. Yeah, yeah. And so, how long was that process? Okay, so it started March 10th. We signed the deal on June 14th, which was when we could announce it. Which yep. that was a big pressure release because. We had like 15 employees that we literally couldn't tell that anything was going on and they knew stuff was going on. Yep, yep. <laughs> so that was a three-month period of, of crazy emotional ups and downs that we had to act like nothing was going on. Yep. Um, and then the deal actually closed on July 5th and I had my Acura July 6th. 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like how you jump to the to the result, the Acura. Oh, That's yeah. awesome. But yeah. you you achieved something <laughs> from that that March 10th, did you say was was basically yeah. an LOI, right? You so you know purchase price, yes. there's the intention. Yep. We're gonna move forward exclusively with this group. Great. Now you've got to continue to run a business and run what is a full-time yep. job and M&A process to get through. Even when you have the buyer, right? All that due diligence, everything they're digging in, all of the documentation. Did you have any support along the way to get you through that, that three-month period? Yeah, so fortunately, my, my brother has more of the uh, psychotherapist mindset. So, okay. and, and, well, and the picture of the red Ferrari to help motivate him, <laughs> right? So what happened is after we inked the deal, you know, after we had the term deal, which was a very quick meeting. Like yep. this, probably like an hour and twenty minutes meeting, and now we're walking out with this, you know, with this ten million dollar deal. At that point, that's when the CFO and the lawyers, multiple legal teams, get involved, and you've got like a hundred page document being redlined on both sides. Mm -hmm. And then what also happens is that emotions start flaring up on all sides, and not just among us, but among these professionals who, it's their professional ego. <clears throat> it's like their egos on the line. Yeah. So when their counterparty insults them by mistake, they get upset too. Sure. And a lot of the deal was working through the issues. And this was, again, my brother, Sam, being the 
chaperone of a lot of this, helping bring people back to the table and saying like, let's step away from all this ego and all this emotion to figure out how do we solve these problems, right? So we had a few details that had to be, you know, that, that literally could have been deal breakers to the point where our law firm called us and said, you guys need to walk away from this deal. And we called back and we're like, I mean, imagine it's May of 2000, like you see the writing on the wall that the dot-com thing is like just ready to go. Yep. And we've got this deal going. It's like, we're not walking away from this deal. We're, we're moving forward with this. Not, not to mention the company acquiring us was a perfect fit for us to continue to support our clients. Sure, so sure. There was a million reasons for us to do this. So it's like, how do we get back to the table and how do we get past whatever stupidity is trying to kill this deal? Yeah, I don't know your exact situation, right? All of the personalities involved, but I love the stories where there's a business development relationship. So kind of the product or service is already really well understood by the acquiring side. So when that decision to buy you, you're not necessarily stepping on someone's toes, right? Like, oh, I was supposed to build that product. I can't do it. So they're going to go buy this group, but there's already been kind of the dating period. And then yeah. the corp dev group comes in and says, hey, it just makes more economic sense. We can leverage those customers better to our own advantage, their strategic value. So if you were walking in saying, hey, we've got kind of this new business model that's working really well, I could see how there are certain people, certain divisions going, wait a second, who's making this call, right? So you got to get a lot of people on board to get something over the goal line, never mind the purchase agreement and, and all the legal work, right? And negotiation that goes into that. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's huge. Like, so I think for us, that's a good, that's a good way of framing it because for us, it was like a shotgun wedding. Yeah. Right. So we just kind of showed up. It's like, great, let's get married. The company had just, that bought us had just gone public like three months before. Yeah. So they're like, cool, our first acquisition, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, but wow. obviously when they brought it out to their wider team, they're like, well, let's think about this, you know? So now the suddenly I can imagine from their perspective, like, okay, it's a Friday afternoon. Now suddenly we've got a, an active deal on our plate. What do we do with this thing? So to your point, like that, that hot potato would have been a lot less hot if it had been a longer courting process or if we'd had a business relationship for a long period before that. And for you also, right? So are you going to work for this acquirer for a while oh, and yeah. transition the Absolutely. business? So yep. now you got to get to know a whole new set of people, right? Is this the right fit for you? I guess that's kind of trial by fire. That's an interesting story too, because, you know, so we had you can imagine we're like off on an island here. We've got 15, you know, ragtag team of people just doing our thing. And we had no idea, like, are we really good at what we do? Or are we amateurs? Like, you literally have no point of reference, right? And now suddenly we're getting acquired by this much larger company. And very quickly, it turned out that they treated us like rock stars. They loved us. And, and the weird thing that happened, too, is it was like a reverse acquisition from a staffing perspective. We had been getting pressure from our client, like, Hey, your bench, you know, you're going to grow your bench. Like, so we're a 15 person company. They wanted 50 people on this team. They're like, they were pressuring us. And so we called them up and said, yeah, we're acquiring and we're going to be able to increase our you know, team size to 30 people overnight. They were ecstatic. Oh, that's awesome. And so it was like a reverse, like we had an office, 10,000 square foot office with 15 people that suddenly just filled up with all the people from the acquiring company. It was like the best people from the acquiring company. It was a, it really was a match made in heaven. I mean, it was, it was phenomenal like there was so much cultural fit there that we kind of knew when we originally made the deal but to watch it come to fruition was pretty exciting when you put that initial slide together around your perception of valuation were you taking into account right how your clients would respond when you've got a bigger bench and more resources or or taking into account how they would leverage what you were bringing to the table 
a little bit, but we didn't realize how valuable it was till we actually inked that deal. Yeah. Right. Because I think for us, the real thing pushing us was that we were we were pretty excited that we had run a what we thought was a successful company. We were running like thirty four percent profit margin, you know, doing great work, having great growth. But whenever we started talking to venture capitalists, they were throwing this very bizarre logic at us. Like we had to. They didn't care that we were profit. Profit was like not a word in their in their vocabulary at that time because this was the dot com explosion. We needed to prove to them that we could take eight million dollars of their money and lose ten of it. <laughs> and we we're kind of scratching our head, like that seems like a recipe for blowing the company up. And in hindsight, that would have killed the company if we had taken venture capital. That would have killed it. So to be in a room with a company that's similar culture values to us, but further down the path. And then to your point, to realize that, hey, this could help us solve this urgent problem of the team issue. Everything just lined up for us. It was a no-brainer. That's great, right? My first sale, we really left a lot of money on the table. So that's where this question is coming from. And we left money on the table because you just didn't have the insight into the strategic value of this acquisition. You know, we did it with a business broker at the time or an M&A advisor. Do you think you guys left any, in hindsight, left anything on the table from that acquisition? There's kind of two answers to that. So I think the first answer is there is just two aspects of blind luck that made the deal just work out perfectly for us. So first of all, obviously NASDAQ being at its height was not a bad time to sell the company, right? Because they looked at us and said, well, you know, their stock price had just closed at 50 times revenue. So they looked at us, they're like, well, we can pay you five times revenue and just get an immediate pop off of that, right? So that obviously helped. The other part of the deal was they priced the shares at like 20 days trailing of whenever the deal signed. So their stock price went down by about 70% between when we had the verbal and when we signed it, which means we got triple the shares that we would have gotten if we had. So I would say that we, by pure luck, we just, everything fell into place it, but in terms of like, we couldn't, we didn't leave any money on the table. Now the flip side, the second answer to that question is, fast forward a year later, um, our clients were like a big chunk of the revenue of the company. Cause what we brought to the company was absolute quality, right? And so that, and because of being able to, you know, bring their team members in, we were able to grow those accounts quite a bit. So yeah, I think it was a great deal on both sides of the table, actually, if I think about it. That's great. Thank you for sharing all that. What I, I'd love to jump to, I think the next exit, I don't know if it's yeah. number two in line, but the one we spoke about, incredibly yeah. interesting, where time is not necessarily your friend. I'd love to hear about that one. Sure, yeah, and there's, there's a few aspects to it. So first I'd bring up the strategic thing, right? So when, when I was designing that second company and when we were at the whiteboarding session, we thought about strategic acquisition from day one. Like we were really thinking about like this company, when it gets to a certain uh, brand, it almost becomes like a toll booth for the industry. And in doing that, that could give it a lot of power if we're able to achieve that. So that was literally when we started formulating the company, we were thinking about the strategic exit from day one. Okay. Right. So then when we actually, years later, when we got to the point where the strategic acquirer showed up, they fit the exact profile of what we had defined on day one, yep. right? Where they're looking at this and saying, this is a company that is already sending us a lot of business. And imagine how much more business they could send us if we were to pump more resources into it and acquire it. So what was interesting to me is that the 
hypothesis at the whiteboard that said, if we build this for a strategic acquisition, came to fruition years later in terms of attracting that strategic acquirer, because we weren't just acquired based on like, oh, here are your numbers and here's a multiple. Like we were a strategic acquisition at that point. And in this business, you took on external investors, right? We did. Okay. Yeah. And did you share that strategy of how you were going to create liquidity and a return for those investors? Yeah, that was part of it. I mean, you know, there was, you know, multiple strategies like, hey, this could come big, it could be public, but that was definitely part of the strategy that, that we, we brought to them. You know, although a lot of those investors came on board because we were, when we raised the money, we didn't need the money, right? So that, which is like to say the strategy for raising money is don't need it, but we literally didn't need it and they could read that. So we, there was an excitement to it that they were, they were throwing fuel on a fire. And you obviously had a history of, of success, right? That you could lean on on what you had built previously. Yeah. Okay. So, but, but this is a different dynamic. Now you have investors, you've got this plan to exit in a certain way, and it sounds like it's coming to fruition. How long did yeah. that take to create what is the funnel for an industry? And now you're going to exit. What was the time frame? Yeah. So this time, this time's, yeah, it's supposed to be easy, right? Because of the lessons learned. Yeah, right, so right. we originally started like, it was kind of a two hot periods, right? So there, it got really exciting one year in like a March, April timeframe, and then it cooled off and then disappeared. And then suddenly in December of that year, it heated up again, right? It's sort of like there was a lot of interest and then they kind of, the interest died down. And then out of nowhere, we're suddenly urgently interested again. Interesting. Do you know what kind of stimulated that? You know, it's not entirely sure on what might have been on their side. Maybe they saw like the hypotheses in terms of like this, like the numbers growing and growing and growing on their side that were supplying and then realized that, yeah, this was a deal they wanted to do. But then, but then that got to, you know, your, your question, which is, okay, so now at the second point where it's like, they really want to go to the altar at this point, right? This isn't fooling around. If the first time was just messing around and like, yeah, let's talk. This time it's like, it was clear that, yeah, deal both sides wanted to create a deal. Um, that was like, you know, the end of one year. And then, so I call that December. The deal went pretty quick, for maybe two months, but it felt like about 10 years because of the challenges that happened along the way from the kind of verbal, yeah, let's do this to the inked and money wired. Some of the challenges that happened became pretty interesting and almost, almost killed the deal multiple times. In this particular case, there was a document. So we had about 43 investors, if I remember right. And, and our cap table had, you know, 43 lines on it. I know today when deals are done, a lot of times you'll consolidate investors into a line item, right? So we didn't, we didn't really have that. We didn't have DocuSign. So when we put that time frame, at one point we had a document that said, like late January, it said, okay, we've got 30 days to close, which would put us at February 28th at 5 p.m. That time becomes important, right? So, but at the time we were like 30 days, like at this point, everything's figured out. We need like, you know, 14 days or whatever. Then we started wrangling to get signatures from these 43 investors. Now, some of these guys are like on yachts somewhere in the Indian ocean, like with a fax machine trying to go back and forth to get signatures. So the signatures dragged a little bit, took a little bit longer. There's a little bit more negotiation. And suddenly we get to February 24th, right? Which is a Thursday. And so we're like, oh, we'll close February 25th. Everything's in order. And then February 25th, the Delaware Secretary of State makes a typo on a form, and that kills it that day. So now suddenly we're at February 28th, and we're like, how did this happen? So February 28th arrives, and that's 
there's literally nothing we could do but keep our fingers crossed. I think I played um, Angry Birds all day long because I'm like, that's what I can do is get my Angry Birds game better. There's literally nothing I can do to influence at this point. It's all up to uh, the gods of Delaware. And uh, at 3.52 p.m., a wire transfer showed up in my bank account. Oh, my gosh. So one hour, eight minutes. And and just to be clear, if this hadn't gone through, yeah, this very well could have killed the deal because emotions were so tense at that point, like they always are in any of these deals. And we would have had to go through a really challenging procedure to get all sorts of signatures again. And I think at that point, all these emotions would have exploded and potentially killed the deal. So we were an hour and eight minutes from catastrophe. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know the exact situation, but again, like you've told me some of your stories and when you have a date that everybody's shooting for, sometimes the business with investors or banks, you have certain covenants. And if you don't hit certain dates, it triggers a whole bunch of other things, whether you owe money in or out. And then the documents have to be adjusted and renegotiated and re-redlined. And you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing these deals. Was that part of the challenge of? That was absolutely part of it. The oh, other okay. part of it, too, is, you know, when you've got 43 investors and they all have different life philosophies yes right some of some of whom are more into the pencil sharpening and looking at nickels than the big picture right yeah so there was there was an investor who almost killed the deal at the last minute um i think this was on the 25th when we were already dealing with that other issue saying like you know we should redo all the documents now because since this has taken a few extra weeks there was some interest payment they were they were going to get on some piece of it yeah that we now owed them another couple thousand dollars interest <laughs> yeah. so you wanted to like redo the documents and resubmit all and like and fortunately uh, you know another one of the investors who was also leading the round just looked at him and said no that's ridiculous you're going to kill the deal so there was just so many opportunities for a deal to get just obliterated from every different angle you know i think uh, hearing this story the lesson for me really starts at the beginning with your cap table Kind of keeping that clean right and it's not that you can't have multiple investors you referenced it right having an yeah. spv right a special purpose vehicle that is one name on the cap table that requires a single signature and not having investors have blocking rights or you know hey i need to be part of every part of this m a process or you don't exactly. get my signature right i mean that's the lesson one of the lessons I think that I'm hearing that I'd love listeners to take away. We're always, as entrepreneurs, we need the money, right? And we're willing to sign to get the business, to live another day and keep growing the company. But if you're thinking about an exit as you should when you take other people's money, right? That is the goal to return capital and provide a return on that capital to investors. You got to know that you got to control that investor set. So any, yeah. I mean, you, you had one that almost blows up a deal because yeah. they want an interest yeah. payment. I have a friend that he's about to sign and one investor that had a blocking right required, and I think it was like half a million dollars in order to sign. It was almost a bribe, right? <laughs> like, you, no, I'm not happy. Just like you said, right? They have different interests in life and yeah. the, the profit that this guy was going to make from the deal was not game-changing enough and he required something special on the side. So I think that yeah. there's a real lesson in that, in, in understanding your cap yeah. table and the rights that you're giving to your investors. Oh my God, this is just, you know, mul multiply this by 10, because I think like in that particular deal, so we were talking about this particular investor, we were talking about hundreds of dollars on a $10 million plus deal, right? That's what was at stake. But that's the kind of thing that ego can get involved. And it's reminding me of 
one of my angel investments that I got involved in where, you know, the company was, it was a great idea, didn't quite get traction, right? Well, it got to the point where he had to come back to the investors and said, like, look, I need, I need some other path, right? And one of the investors, so this company was struggling with sales. One of the investors was a solid sales guy and said, he had a, created a whole deal to restructure the company and move forward. And one of the other investors just killed the deal. And all I can say is, I don't know if it was out of spite, ego, there was something the other investor didn't like, right? And he just killed it. So this, this could have given this company second, a second breath of life, and it didn't get it. So that company ended up imploding. You know, I'm always hesitant to kind of plug exit-wise and in, in what we do, but I think that this is pretty important where we think of ourselves as almost like your most informed board member around M&A or we're the, the founder's Sherpa, right? The seller's Sherpa throughout the M&A process. And a lot of what we do is handling these personalities from co-founders to employees to investors and the dream team M&A team that we put in front of you from investment banker to lawyer to accountant, Q of E, insurance, all of that. And what we find we're really good at is dealing with all those personalities and bringing people to some semblance of being rational and keeping that out of your hair and out of the investment banker's hair and allowing you to run your business and get the requirements of an M&A deal to the investment banker and the attorneys to ink that deal. And we're so proud of what we do because we know that personal element that the psychologist in, in your pocket is of huge value to get these deals done and they don't crash like what you just described. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were very fortunate. So, you know, in the first case we had in my brother, Sam, you know, the picture of the Ferrari and his psychologist mindset that kept things going to the point because we had very expensive advisors on all sides, very competent advisors who would get to a point where they said, oh, you need to walk away from this deal. Yeah. And Sam would just bring them back to the table and be like, let's think about this. And, and the solution that would come up for any of these problems turned out to be like absurdly simple, right? But it was just that things get heated and then people can't see these, these opportunities. So, so having someone like, like you at the table in that case is absolutely invaluable there. So we, we were ha lucky that one of our team members could do it, but that's not, that shouldn't be someone on the team doing it because now they have to manage their own emotions too. If you can have an outsider doing it, you know, and, and in the second case, fortunately we had the lead investor played that role of slapping down one of the other investors was like, you're not killing this deal over a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Those are great examples that we're in the middle of a deal right now where the attorney said, guys, we need to step away. This, these, they're not negotiating in good faith. And so there is a time when that is appropriate, but having somebody that can kind of look at a 50,000 foot level and have seen deal after deal after deal, give you the confidence to make that decision. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And I think to your point too, things get so heated and so past the point of no return that sometimes all you have to do is pretend they're not past the point of no return. <laughs> like act, act as if it's still rational, act as if the players are still rational. And sometimes people will come back to life and things will move forward. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. There's one other thing too that happens. This can be all out battle, right? Yep. During these processes. Yep. And when you actually consummate, it's like water under the bridge. I mean, we absolutely loved the company that we, you know, we got acquired with yep. both times. Like it was, it was, it's so it's it's just it's just the process and you have to not take it personally right and you have to realize that once you get through it there was a reason why you came up with this this acquisition in the first place 
Now you get to actually realize that and just move up, go 100% after it. It's just, it's easy to get distracted from that when you're dealing with all the, the hassles of the deal itself. Yeah, we like to tell people having that layer of the intermediary, that great investment banker, that great attorney shields you from a lot of that kind of caustic conversation or debate or negotiation, you're going to have to go work there, right? So we yeah. always want to elevate our founders or business owners to the person that you cannot wait to be on the other side working alongside the product team or the technology team or wherever they're kind of going to deliver value and be really welcomed when they get there, as opposed to somebody that you know, you just, you went 12 rounds with and, and beat the crap out of each other. And now we've got to work together. So having that team on your side can shield you from a lot of that. And that it's not a small point. You have figured out how to have that battle and then be buddies at the, on the other side. So, you know, yeah. kudos to you for figuring that out. Yeah. And by the way, it's, it's a different set of skills that, you know, we had some of the top lawyers involved and they would look at us and be like, this point here is ridiculous, right? And like at, at one point, I think we had to indemnify, this is in the first acquisition, yeah. we had to indemnify our acquirer against like toxic waste buried in our office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, you could buy ExxonMobil with this agreement. And so our, our legal team was looking at that and rightfully saying, this is absolutely ridiculous and getting worked up about it. And, but you know, someone like what you bring to the table could have been like, that's ridiculous. So what? It doesn't matter, right? Practically does not apply. So yep. it doesn't matter that they're asking that there's a million ridiculous things that both sides are going to do during the, during the agreement. The question is, does this deal still make sense? Look, this has been phenomenal. Is there any other advice that you think you would give? I know you've had just tons of experience, right? But more specifically around M&A, right? We know the silence, right? Uh, during negotiation was yeah. worth an extra million bucks to you. Cleaning up your cap table or, or keeping it as clean as possible really helps with M&A, is there anything else that really jumps out at you? Yeah, I mean, I think from us, and, and this would be a lesson learned because this worked out great in both cases, is really think through, this is not the end of the process, this is the beginning of a process together. And so don't, don't just plot the line and like, oh, okay, we have the exit, now we can buy our cars, yeah. which is fun, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But that's literally just, just the beginning of the process. And so picking the right partner really is going to make the next few years of your life better as opposed to just exiting for the sake of, you know, getting the money out. So I think in both cases, we picked great partners and it was in both cases, it was great for the vision of the business. So things move forward really well, but I'd make sure don't, don't not do that, I guess is my point. Yeah. And it, sometimes I think it's probably easier for a founder, a business owner to do if you've had a business development relationship or a strategic relationship with that acquirer for years ahead of time, right? You get to know the parties, you know, who's staying or who's, who may be leaving that company, what value you bring, what other things that you could do. And if you have kind of a like-minded person on the other side, you can understand fit. In a lot of cases where you're running an M&A process and you're bringing multiple potential acquirers to the table, right, as, an, as the investment banker on a deal, it's really that investment banker's job to really understand what fit could look like on the other end and present that as part of criteria for you to make the decision of who you want to sell your business to, right? Because you're interviewing that acquirer as much as they are interviewing you, like you said that getting the acquisition done, that's the starting point of working together. I love that. I love that line. It's so true. No, by the way, it wasn't just for the founders. In my first company, there are three of us as founders, but 
I was most excited about the fact that, you know, so the first few team members we brought on had a great financial result as well. And all of the team members had an incredible career result as an outcome of this process. So that, you know, that, that was, that felt really good. I think, you know, 20 some odd years later to look back and say that this acquisition was a great thing for everyone in the company, right? It moved their career forward. It's fantastic. Well, to end, I've been staring over your left shoulder there, and I, I see a vehicle in the window. It's not a photograph, right? I'm looking out the window, but there's too much it's light shine. Oh, real. it's not. Look at that. <laughs> it's a model. All oh, right. So, yeah, is that I, an old NSX? What is that? A '91? So that is that is a that is yeah the the first model NSX. So that was my car that I had for years, but that's just a model of it. And unfortunately, after <laughs> five years and eleven speeding tickets. I decided it was time to uh, to get rid of that car and uh, learn how to drive slower. It literally looks like it's parked outside <laughs> it your window with light shining on it. And I didn't want to be wrong. I'm like, 1991 <laughs> NSX. That's what yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. great. That's great. Yep. All right, Jeff, this is amazing, amazing stories. Uh, so what are you working on now? All right, so I'm, I'm doing a few things. So right now I'm running the Founder Breakthroughs podcast where I'm interviewing uh, other founders who... Uh, have uh, incredible stories and kind of pulling out what are the what are the interesting insights we we can get out of that, um, and I'm also working on something called Startup Mastermind, which is helping new founders get their get their businesses off the ground. Um, that's at startupmastermind.com. That's great. I love the kind of the similar ethos, right? We're both doing what we can to help the next generation of founders. You're doing it kind of at the beginning. We're trying to do it at the, at maybe not necessarily end, but at that exit stage. So really appreciate the efforts. Yeah. And I think that was, that was the genesis of this, right? So the episode that you, you listened to was called begin with the exit in mind, yeah. which was a really important podcast episode that I did, because I know that when people are starting their company, they need to be thinking of the exit from, from day one. Well, Jeff, thank you. This has been really helpful. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. Your story is amazing, right? You're the serial entrepreneur that just keeps it going, which I love. So thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.